0: Again, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. And then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. And they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed. Those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fire, burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound to the fire? And they answered and said to the king, O true, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men bound, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men, Their hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him, and set, set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people nation or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego shall be torn from limb to limb this man is used to extremes <laughs> shall be torn from limb to limb and their houses laid in ruins and there is no for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way and then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the province of Babylon this my friends is the word of the Lord thanks be to God let's pray O God, who rules over and overrules, even when maniacal monarchs, uh, even maniacal monarchs, oh, may our trust and our commitment to you become even more muscular this very evening. Amen. You may be seated. So there's notes on the back of your worship guide, should be some quotes there. Yes, there are two quotations at the end. So, my friends, Daniel 3, as I said, is its own illustration. It's a story, it's a narrative, it's its own illustration. It's an illustration of faithfulness. But remember, it is also part of the ongoing illustration of some of God's people who received the letter from Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29, written. Uh, Spoken by the Lord, written by Jeremiah and sent to the exiles at this time. It's it's an illustration of how God's people strove to work out that letter, Jeremiah 29. I cannot emphasize Jeremiah 29 to you enough. Remember in that letter, God commands God's people in Babylon, in exile, seek the welfare, the shalom of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to Yahweh on its behalf. For in its welfare, in its shalom, you will find your welfare, your shalom. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets, don't let your talking heads, your reporters on MSNBC and Fox News and all of your commentators, don't let your prophets or your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in My name. I did not send them, declares the Lord." This whole section from from Daniel 1 through Daniel 6 is an extended working out of God's letter to the exiles in Babylon. And so it's still an illustration. Lastly, the the literary structure of Daniel. Daniel 3 and Daniel 6 have much in common. This is the way Daniel wrote chapters 1 through 7. There's a bunch of, of parallels in these chapters, and so in Daniel 3, as you'll notice, some of the king's uh, bootlickers, some of the king's uh, courtiers courtiers decide to to, out of malice, betray Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and get them thrown into a fiery furnace. When you get to Daniel 6, some of the king's courtiers are envious as well. And so they get the king, play on his vanity, and get the king to change a law. And so they get Daniel thrown into a lion's den. There's so many parallels between chapter 3 and 6. You should be pulling those together in your head. And so we begin this evening with a setup job. That's verses 1 through 12. It's a setup job. After all that Nebuchadnezzar went through in chapter 2, he saw this this dreamy towering towering image of four different types of metal of uh, different parts of the body the head was gold the torso was silver and then there was iron uh then there was bron- no, wait, bronze and then uh, silver whatever it was i got them backwards and then there was iron for the legs he sees the image but it's funny because he also heard the explanation you o king nebuchadnezzar are the head of gold right and so now comes chapter 3, and what it looks like is it looks like Nebuchadnezzar, who thinks that he's the center of the universe. I don't know if you've been picking that up. But he thinks he's the center of the universe. He feels he has an omen from the gods to put his own twisted version of that dream from chapter 2 into some kind of concrete form. It's very interesting. What is this statue made out of again? Gold. If you go back to the vision, what part of the image of, this, of, a, of the figure was gold? The head, which was Nebuchadnezzar. Isn't that interesting? Do you not catch the nuance there? He thinks it's all about him. Sound like anybody you know? You, don't, don't say any names. Don't say any names. He thinks it's all about him. And so he takes his own twisted version of the dream, and now he puts it into a concrete form. And so the king's design, notice that he designs this whole thing. In fact, at the very beginning of chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, and he set it up, and he has to reinforce it. So the king's design, he made up this image, he set up this image, and he shores up this image. That's verses 1 through 12 in a nutshell. And so notice how often, I tried to emphasize it to you, how often the phrase or its synonym is used in verse 1, 2, twice in verse 3, verse 5, verse 7, verse 12, verse 14, verse 15, verse 18. He made this image and he set it up, 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 he set it up. up. And you're listening to it and some of the kids were laughing. I assume they were laughing at me emphasizing that which is exactly what you were meant to do. You were supposed to hear it and go, oh, it's a setup job. Because it is. There's nothing divine about the image. It requires humans to set it up and to keep it up. And you realize there's no life in that image. He's worshiping a lifeless image and he wants everyone else to worship a lifeless image. It's a setup job. So, my friends, one lesson is very clear. If the Spirit has inspired the retelling of this story, and He did, and if this really is God's Word to God's people, and it is, then you hear actually some kind of divine chuckling and mockery resonating in the story. In fact, you said it yourselves in the call to worship He who sits in the heavens laughs. And the Lord holds them in derision. There's divine laughter and chuckling going on in those first twelve verses. He set it up. He set it up. He set it up. He set it up. It's just like First Kings eighteen. Anybody remember First Kings eighteen, the Mount Carmel affair? Elijah tells Ahab, he says, "Get all your prophets, all your, Ash, your, your, uh, your prophets of Asherah and your prophets of Baal, and meet me at the top of Mount Carmel." You remember the story? And they get up there and he says, okay, you look, you set up your altar over there and I'll set up mine over here when you get done. And then they're dancing around for half a day and he keeps taunting them so that you actually chuckle into your sleeve, so to speak. Well, maybe, maybe you need to speak a little louder. It kind of is like this in Hebrew. Maybe Bell is on the commode somewhere and is a little busy and can't hear you. Louder, please, louder. Right? The whole point is... It's insane. Yes. And you laugh because God is laughing at the inanity. Something very, very similar here. And so Daniel 3 is laughing at the king's egotistical attempts. But another lesson is maybe not so clear, but it is lurking in the shadows here. Notice that the king's gods need state muscle to make them potent. I mean, verse 4 through 6, he has to issue a command at the, the end of a, of a gun, right? At the end of a spear point. He threatens death if they don't come and do this. Notice that his God does not have any power. It requires state muscle. It's really interesting. And so then, comes the bootlickers, the king's bootlickers. And I want you to notice the king's bootlickers... They're all riddled with envy and scorn. Notice how it puts it when you get to verse eight. They maliciously accuse the Jews. I assume they were not just accusing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were accusing all Jews, which would include Daniel, because they were being faithful. They're not going to bow to that image. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are political leaders, and so they're going to be spearpointed. They're going to be pulled out and targeted specifically. But it's all the Jews. And so they maliciously accuse the Jews and then they get down to talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And notice the accusation. There are certain Jews, verse 12, whom you have appointed. Now, if Nebuchadnezzar is a maniacal monarch that I think he is, and probably a narcissist to some extent, that is a threatening challenge. That he actually set up the wrong people in power. They knew what they were doing to play on him. Certain leaders whom you appointed king, they don't listen to you and they don't care about your gods. I mean, they are playing on Nebuchadnezzar's whole psychological makeup. His emotional range. They're resentful. They're spiteful. Just like the boys will be over in Daniel 6 when they get Daniel thrown into the lion's den. In fact, you can't miss it when you go read chapter 6 how they play on King Darius' ego. Uh, make up a law that everybody has to pray only to you. Oh, that's wonderful. I love the idea. Boom, here's the law. And it was all to get Daniel thrown into a lion's den. My friends, it's all a setup job. It's a setup job on two levels. The king sets up this false image, and his bootlickers, his, his, uh, his uh, staff, set him up. As well. You see it? It's a setup job. I think it was a great play on the word. So, in the midst of the setup job comes a stand up moment, and that's verses 13 through 18. Notice that the king clearly has a problem regulating his emotions. Verse 13 furious rage. Then you drop down to verse 19 filled with fury. And then, when you get to his threat after he gets shown up for being, a, a, being wrong, Then he overreacts in the other way. Whoever doesn't give Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and their God the the proper due, I'm going to tear them from limb to limb and pull their houses down. And he is a man given to extremes. He is unable to regulate his emotions. Furious rage, filled with rage. So just as a side thought, is it any wonder that political and religious leaders who are full of themselves have problems regulating their emotional extremes and thus become prime targets for malicious, manipulative bootlickers and subordinates. Just an interesting side thought. Back to the point. Notice Nebuchadnezzar's grandiosity, verses 13 through 15. He really is full of it. Okay, Shadrach, Misha, and Abednego, if you do not not serve my gods or worship the golden image I have set up, I'm going to give you one more chance. And then he ends with that line at the end of verse 15. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Notice Nebuchadnezzar's delusion of grandiosity. In fact, his delusion of grandiosity sounds just like Sennacherib's 100 years earlier when you go to 2 Chronicles 32 and Sennacherib was outside of Jerusalem. And what does he say? Therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you in this fashion. Do not believe him for no God of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you out of my hand? His maniacal egotism is so huge. He sees himself as actually stronger than any divinity. He is the greater of all the gods. That's... That's the language. Wow, that would go to somebody's head pretty quick. And it did. But, my friends, notice that with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there's no groveling and no grandstanding. Notice verse 16. They hear the threat. They're before the king. They hear the threat. They hear the the challenge. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, king, O Nebuchadnezzar, We have no need to answer you in this manner. In a nutshell, O King, we are not going to make a big stink over this. We're not going to run off to Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, YouTube, or whatever other social platform to get out there and crowdsource justice for our sakes. We're not going to go out there and do any of that. We're just going to stand here and be faithful. We have no need to answer you. And so then secondly, there's no groveling or grandstanding. So then secondly, notice that they express their knowledgeable faith. Notice in verse 17, if this be so, if we're going to be cast into a fiery furnace. Great. One God or our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Notice this knowledgeable faith. Where did they get it from? Think about it. Their response is actually built upon piles and piles of bible stories in fact this whole scene is in a some sense coming out of the beginning of the ten commandments i am yahweh your god who brought you out of the land of egypt out of the house of bondage the impossible circumstance you could not liberate yourself from i brought you out I set you free, and as free people, you worship only me, and you don't make any images of me to worship. Right? Very clear. It's all wrapped up in gospelish kind of stuff. And so their response is built on piles and piles of biblical stories, such as the Ten Commandments, the first part. So that's a knowledgeable faith. But finally, in this stand-up moment, they show that theirs is a no-nonsense piety. Verse 18, first three words. But if not. God is able to deliver us, He will, but if not. I'm telling you, my friends, that is faith ringing loud and clear. But if not. Genuine faith, my friends, does not try to manipulate God and I wish people in Tulsa would listen to me. Or wherever, Houston, wherever. Biblical faith does not strive to manipulate God. But if not, it doesn't try, biblical faith does not try to lay hold of the heavenly levers of power and dominance and force God's hand. But if not, it doesn't, uh, uh, one of faith's greatest moments is when it can face a Nebuchadnezzar's threat of I will cast you into the burning, fiery furnace and face that threat and respond with defiant hope that says, but if not, if God will not deliver us, we still will not compromise. That is bone deep biblical faith. And so as you think about that, look at the the story up to this point, and I have to ask you the question, who here has the real power in this situation, humanly speaking. Nebuchadnezzar, who has all the power of the state behind him, or Shadrach Meshach, and Abednego. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Score for Steve! Give him a gold star. Exactly! Here's what I mean. It's not the king, because he is never able to make Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fall down and worship the golden image he set up. He may kill them. He may try to cow them into compliance with intimidation, but their stand-up moment shows who really is in power or has power, humanly speaking. It's because it's a quiet defiance. We have no need to answer you. Here's the simple answer. Our God is able, but if not, we are not. Period. No big, great fanfare It's a quiet defiance. And I want you to notice that their quiet defiance is a very pointed defiance. On this point, O king, we will comply. We will not comply. On this point. Remember, my friends, they are working out according to God's a letter to them through Jeremiah 29 they're working out Jeremiah 29 which is to seek the welfare the shalom of the city where God has exiled them so they're not renegades they're very precise on this point we will not compromise even when they're serving a maniacal monarch notice what they don't do they don't throw off all of his rulership they only throw off this one policy Only this one policy. now, my friends, that is a biblical pattern throughout Scripture. Unfortunately, sometimes Christians feel that when their supervisors or magistrates mandate one immoral policy, well, this means we're free to throw off all of their authority and and we're free to to go do our own thing because they're not legitimate any longer. No, it's one policy that's very poignant here. You're off, and here is where we're not going to obey you, this one thing. I think that's huge. I think that's a big deal. My friends, godly defiance is very limited and very pointed. Regarding this policy, no, sir. In fact, you will notice how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not even disrespectful to Nebuchadnezzar. Did you notice that? They do call him O Nebuchadnezzar, because apparently that was part of the court. A privilege they had to call him by name. But they come out and keep saying to him two more times, O king, O king. They're very respectful. They're not disrespectful. That's interesting. And so this is their stand-up moment. And then comes the snuffed out deed. And so it's verses 19 through 30. Notice, notice that first off, um, the, the whole ending section works out this way. There's a flaming out Nebuchadnezzar, verse 19, is filled with fury and he heats up the temperature of the furnace so hot that the the guys who bound up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and take them and throw them into the, the furnace die immediately. It tells you this was not a game. This was a deadly moment, right? So the king flames out, but then notice that it's a fading flame. Notice verse 24 and 25. After they're thrown into the fiery furnace, by the way, notice verse 23, they fall down into the burning fiery furnace. They were not taken in with kid gloves. They were thrown in, right? So they fell into the fire, probably fell right on their faces and everything. They fell in. But notice then the fading flame. It's in verse 24 and 25. The king rises up astonished and in haste. And he says, did we not cast in three men? And yet I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the, fire, the fourth is like a son of the gods. The flame, his own hatred or his own anger begins to fade out because he is overwhelmed with what he sees. It goes against everything he anticipated would happen. And so then, verse 26 through 27, it's a snuffed out flame, if you will. He goes up to the furnace. I can't imagine how close he could have gotten because it killed those other guys. I can't imagine he got too close. So he's probably hollering in there and ho- hollering to be overheard, to be heard over the roaring of the fire. Anybody ever done a big fire? You know how big fires get really, really loud, right? He's probably hollering as loud as he can. I see that hand. And he gets hollering really, really loud over those flames of fire. And he says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. What happens is that the flame is now being snuffed out. They bring them out and there's no smell. There's no singeing. There's no burning. Okay, kids, you do campfires. Do you know how bad you smell? You know how you smell like burnt wood? Yeah, yeah. There's no smell of that. There's nothing that says that they were actually thrown into the furnace. They were, but there's no lingering uh, uh, remnant of of any of that. And so the, it's a snuffed out flame. And then Nebuchadnezzar turns. And when he gets done, he says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who sent his angel delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command. Which command did they set aside of the king's command? One. To fall down and worship that image. Not all of his policies. One. They set aside the king's command yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their god and so then this grand decree where i'm gonna rip everybody from limb to limb if they don't agree with me and then he says and he goes back on what he had said to them threateningly in verse 15 he says there is no other god who is able to deliver or to rescue in this way the king has a newly enkindled flame what does that mean it's saving faith not at this point And maybe not ever. But he's rethinking his policies. Right? Okay? So the king's grudging acknowledgement comes out there in verse 29. Here's the God. There is a God who is able to actually trump me. Wow. When there's the story. It's a great story. So three thoughts to come away with as we end this. So tell me again, Who's in control here? God is, right? Yeah, very good. God is in control here. That's the whole point of the story. That's the whole point of chapter one. It's the whole point of chapter two. It's the whole point of chapter three. It's not kings. It's not prime ministers. It's not presidents. It's not voting blocks. It's God who is in control. And the whole story is meant to bring you and me. To come to be amazed by this God. By the God of Daniel. The God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And shame on us when we are not amazed with Him, but we're more fearful and amazed by political powers or whoever's got a gun or whatever. This is who we should be amazed with. This God. Secondly, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's faithful commitment is built on gospel-like contentment. It's built on that statement at the beginning of the Ten Commandments. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I brought you out of an impossible situation. I'm the one who's able. I'm the one who set you free. Here's how free people live. You don't worship any other gods. I'm it. And you don't make any images of me to worship, and on and on, right? Right? And so their their confidence, their commitment is built on and grows out of this gospel-ish commitment. And so notice that this is not some whistling in the dark, right? This is not wishful thinking. It's built on this gospel content. I love the way Wendy Wider puts it in her Zondervan Evangelical Commentary on the Old Testament. This is your first quotation. Quote, it's worth noting that no one delivered the men from the fire. They were cast right into the midst of it. Now let that settle in for a minute. Oh yeah, they weren't delivered from the fire. They were thrown right into it, fell down in it. Instead, they were delivered from the expected consequences of the fire, namely death. I think, brothers and sisters, we need to remember that God rarely delivers us out of those things. Often we have to go through them, but He can deliver us from the expected consequences, even if the consequence is death. That should encourage our hearts. Here's the third thing. Though there's an enigmatic hint that Jesus is on the scene, the, the one like a, a, the, a son of the gods, right? Who's there with them. I think what's more important is that Jesus himself seems to have had this episode, Daniel 3, in mind when he told us how costly Christ-centered commitment is that Wes read in Matthew 10. Don't fear the one who can throw you into a fiery furnace. Fear the one who is actually able to to destroy you body and soul. Here's what commitment is. No longer fearing them, but fearing only him. And Jesus seems to have had this story as the backdrop. And so that brings Ralph Davis to write this. Quote, the writer holds before you this episode because he wants you to make the same response as Daniel's friends. I will believe and obey the first commandment even if it kills me and it may. That is the concern of the story. And I think that summarizes and helps us with Daniel 3. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord God, for this whole episode, this true historical episode that shows you working very quietly the way that you worked. There was no grandiose things of fireworks and so forth. There was just simply preserving your people in the fire. But even just to see their commitment, to see their commitment, before they get thrown in the furnace just to say, but if God won't deliver us, it doesn't matter. We still won't violate this, lib- this law of liberty. We won't worship any other gods. And their whole faith built upon that gospel part of the Ten Commandments, that you are Yahweh our God who brought us out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Lord, may we have the same commitment. We thank you, Lord, for the story. We thank you for what it tells us and how it fortifies our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.